Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. On the docket today, we have our first in a two-parter on the mastermind of a massive fraud. I'm talking stealing over $4 billion from an entire country kind of fraud. Not only was this dude walking around with perhaps the most liquid cash in human history, he was spending it faster than the Hogwarts School of Wizardry goes through defense against the dark arts teachers. Including funding a mega blockbuster starring Leonardo DiCaprio, snagging a major share in a music production company where he rubbed shoulders with Pharrell Williams, and throwing some of the most opulent parties all around the globe, studded with more celebrities than a glitzy award show. He is known as the Asian Great Gatsby. Get ready to dive into the audacious world of Joe Lowe. And to take your listening experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Key players this week are Joe Lowe, his right-hand man Riza Aziz, Najib Razak, who was the Prime Minister of Malaysia, and also Riza Aziz's stepdaddy. And you'll see the former Prime Minister's wife, Rosma Mansour, who makes Amelda Marcos look like a hobo. But before we talk about Joe, I want to talk about me. You guys, I really try to consume content outside of the true crime world, you know, do my best to broaden my horizons so I can at least be conversant in other topics that won't creep out strangers at a dinner party. But as hard as I try, true crime trouble just keeps finding me. And I have discovered some of the gnarliest criminal stories on podcasts that aren't about true crime at all. 
it happened when tuning in to Reply All, and I learned about one of the most prolific criminal masterminds of all time, Paul LaRue, of whom I did a juicy two-parter on a few months back. I learned about my next fraudster obsession, Joe Lowe, on The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's been podcasting since 2010. Lately, he's swerved into the self-help vibe, but interviews is really where he shines. Jordan Harbinger has a legal and financial background, but then did a total 180 and started leading tours in places like Mexico, Serbia, and North Korea via China. He's been kidnapped twice and lived to tell the tale. And Jordan brings his legal skill, risk-taking personality, and intense curiosity to every interview. Obviously, some of his guests are way better than others, but dude, I've heard some of the most fascinating moments of audio on his show. Like his interview with Fire Festival mastermind Billy McFarlane, who was calling in from federal prison where Billy admits guilt for the very first time. You can find lots of other interviews covering scams, cults, global and financial crimes on Harbinger's show. They make excellent primer jumping off points to take you down further rabbit holes. And that's where it started for me when Jordan Harbinger interviewed journalist and author Tom Wright. Tom Wright worked at the Wall Street Journal and has since launched his own media company called Project Brazen. He co-authored the book Billion Dollar Whale with Bradley Hope back in 2018. And after hearing his interview, I couldn't download the audiobook fast enough. So I'm going to give you the highlights, plus some updates in the ongoing Joe Lowe saga. Unfortunately, I do have to talk a teensy little bit about economics and foreign policy. And yup, I'm already bored too. But it's vital table setting so we can feast on some wicked meaty celebrity gossip later on. So if you find yourself zoning out, just pretend I'm Margot Robbie breaking down jargon for you while taking a bubble bath. In fact, that should be a hard and fast rule for all my episodes. We begin our story in Penang, Malaysia. A port city on the northwest coast, it was a major pit stop in the opium trade back in the late 1700s. Today, the region is densely populated with a mix of ethnic Chinese, Malays, Indians, Eurasians, Siamese, and expats. I've never been there, but I can only imagine their street food must be amazing. Penang is also home to the Lo family. Joe Lowe's grandpappy was in the liquor business and iron ore mining. He accumulated quite a bit of wealth and was well known as a philanthropist. Lowe's dad expanded the family empire, investing in real estate, plantations, and dabbled with insider trading. Laundering money through offshore shell companies and partying with Swedish models on his yacht. You know, like a cool dad. By the time little boy Joe Lowe came of age, his family was very well off in the city of Penang. So in 1994, when Joe was 13, he was sent away to boarding school at the very elite Harrow School in London. Here, he was rubbing elbows with some of the wealthiest from around the world. The children of billionaires and literal royalty. 
Joe's glimpse into the world of extreme riches, it planted a seed of desire. Being a big fish in a small pond wasn't enough for him. Joe wanted to be the biggest whale in the ocean. He started out by scheming his way into swanky London nightclubs. Joe would give a fake name, collect money ahead of time from other students, then he and his underage friends would ball out on bottle service, all night partying with models and soccer players. Then Joe would make a big show of picking up the bill like he was the king dingling. He got a reputation around school as a fixer, someone who could make things happen. And soon he started to grow a network of wealthy and influential people from around the world. While attending the Haro School, Joe Lowe crossed paths with Riza Aziz. And because fate allowed these two yo-yos to meet, the entire country of Malaysia would never be the same. But we're not quite there yet. First, Joe Lowe has to attend the Wharton School of Business in Philadelphia. Go fighting Quakers! Here, Joe Lowe rebranded himself as the Prince of Malaysia. And many of his UPenn party boy classmates believed this. He also branded himself as sort of a wonderkin stock picker, investing money on behalf of his wealthier friends with excellent recommendations like Enron. Then Joe Lowe took a semester off school and traveled to the United Arab Emirates with a fellow named Yusuf Aloteba, who later goes on to become an ambassador to the United States. Some people out there, not me of course, suggest that this guy received at least $66 million from Joe Lowe's future scheme, and yet he's faced zero prosecution. Whether Alateba colluded with Joe Lowe or not, he does facilitate meetings and acts as a go-between with Joe Lowe and some oil magnates in Abu Dhabi. It is here where Joe first learns about sovereign wealth funds investments the state makes on behalf of its people. This arrangement works out really well if you're the ruling party in an oil-rich country like Saudi Arabia and your state-owned petrol company Saudi Aramco is literally the second largest company in the world by revenue, making your ruling royal family worth over 1.4 trillion with a T dollars. That's 16 times more wealthier than the British royal family. I know, I had a hard time understanding this arrangement too. So let me put it to you this way. You know that insufferable frenemy you have named, let's say, Danica? And she's always spouting off these positive aphorisms and she never eats carbs. But every once in a while, you'll be in a group setting and find yourself surprisingly enjoying Danica's company. Like, wow, maybe I've been wrong about Danica this whole time. She's actually pretty chill. So you let your guard down for just a second and make a self-deprecating joke. Something like, yo, lately I've been feeling more exhausted than Ben Affleck's face. And instead of joining in on your commiseration, Danica switches up the vibe and gives you the oh-so-unhelpful advice of, you just really need to invest in yourself. Yeah, well, those ruling class dudes from oil-rich countries with sovereign wealth funds really took Danica's advice to heart and invested in themselves on a whole nother level. So Joe Lowe sees all this firsthand and makes himself a shady investment Pinterest board. 
Murphy returns to Wharton and throws himself a huge party for his 20th birthday. Joe rents out that super swanky nightclub shampoo for 40 grand. Then he cold calls a bunch of sororities from nearby Penn State to make sure the hottest ladies would be there. In addition to his over-the-top birthday party, Joe loved taking trips to Atlantic City and was known to lose tens of thousands of dollars on a single bet without a care in the world. And that's just the beginning. After college, Joe starts his own private equity firm called Winton, as in win tons of money. Barf. He gets a bunch of his wealthy schoolboy buddies on board, including a Kuwaiti sheik and that dude Yusuf Aloteba. They invest in some huge real estate deals, like an $87 million luxury high-rise apartment building in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. But that high-rise ain't high enough for old Joey Lowboy. He wants to go even higher, and he would get his chance in 2009 when Najib Razak became the Prime Minister of Malaysia. It was the dawning of a new age for this nation. Najib Razak was at the helm for the birth of Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund named One Malaysia Development Bid, or 1MDB, not to be confused with IMDB, the internet movie database where you go to find out who that chick was in that thing. It was Laura Dern. The answer is always Laura Dern. Back to geopolitics. 2009 was also a major turning point for U.S.-Malaysian relations. The two nations went from being frenemies to friends with major benefits. The U.S. had had a testy on-again, off-again relationship with Malaysia for a while, and a U.S. president hadn't visited the country since LBJ. Tensions were especially strained during the Bush administration because their prime minister at the time, Mahathir Mohamad, was very outspoken against the war in Iraq. Even though the U.S. was still doing tons of trading with Malaysia, there was a lot of trash talk between nations in the press. But feelings changed betwixt these two nemesis after Najib Razak became PM of Malaysia and Barack Obama became the president of the United States. That's when they took their relationship to the next level. Joining together in a comprehensive partnership with the, quote, aim of advancing the two countries' common interests and shared values of the people of the United States and Malaysia. AKA, big American banks like Goldman Sachs would underwrite bond sales on behalf of 1MDB, giving the fund credibility and paying out those big, meaty bonuses to bank executives. So where's the money coming from for the 1MDB fund? Glad you asked. The money for Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund came from the working class citizens of Malaysia, fishermen, factory workers, ore miners, and people who work in the plantations, law-abiding taxpayers who worked their tails off and paid into this fund with the promise that it would make their country prosper. They believed 1MDB would lead to better schools, medical facilities, and improved infrastructure. But that's not what happened. Instead, Joe Lowe and his squad used the cash to fund their groovy lifestyles. Which is crazy because Joe never even had an official role. He just used his hashtag influence because of his perceived high success rate in previous investments 
and due to his close ties with his old Haro school classmate Riza Aziz, who is stepson to the new prime minister. Jolo uses his keen stock picker skills that he developed back at the Wharton School to convince the 1MDB board to invest $1 billion into Petrosadi Holdings Limited, based in the Cayman Islands. A billion-dollar investment into basically a doppelganger company made to look like a real petrol company. Jolo loves himself a shell company. He was stacking shells on shells on shells. Money was passing from one country to another, then through a white shoe law firm or financial institution. The scheme is really super convoluted. I've read Billion Dollar Whale twice, and I still can't make heads or tails of the whole thing. I just know for sure that bankers were making bank. And the PM of Malaysia, his wife, Rosa Mansour, Joe Lowe, and close family and friends all started siphoning money off the 1MDB fund. Speaking of which, it's time to go on a shopping spree with Rosma, you guys. Her favorite store is Hermes, where you can pick up a Birkin handbag for the reasonable price of $10,000 to $300,000. Rosma owned 272 Birkin bags, worth an estimated $12.7 million. There is this wild account of Rosma walking into an Hermes store. I believe it was in Hong Kong. So she walks around the entire store, then lists off a handful of items. A list of items she didn't want to buy. Yes, you heard me correct. This savvy shopper bought nearly one of everything in the entire Hermes store. Then her private jet was delayed on the runway because they couldn't fit everything on board. They had to arrange a special cargo van white glove service to transport the rest, holding up tons of air traffic in the process. But Rosma wasn't ashamed of her wealth. Instead, she flaunted it, welcoming the attention. In her own autobiography, she says, quote, As a woman and the wife of a leader, I have to look made up, neat, and take care of my appearance. It's also embarrassing for Malaysians when other countries make fun of the sloppy wife of Malaysia's prime minister. End quote. I can totally relate, Rosma. As a woman who podcasts in my closet, I too go out of my way to look the part, rocking my favorite soup-stained hoodie. Sometimes I even put on pants. There were, of course, a few out there who weren't relating to Rosma and the prime minister's lavish spending. But if anyone dared to critique the shady first lady, they were silenced. The Malaysian administration was handing out jail sentences to journalists like they were Halloween candy. As for Joe Lowe, with his access to the fund, Joey Boy goes on a spending spree like no other. spends over $250 million amassing an art collection with original paintings by Pablo Picasso, Jean-Claude Monet, and Jean-Michel Basquiat. Joe also commissioned the building of a yacht. No ordinary yacht. This was a super yacht. A 300-footer named Equanimity, equipped with a sauna, spa on deck, jacuzzi, swimming pool, gym, movie theater, and helicopter landing pad, of course. You know, the basics. 
His super yacht costs $200 million and an additional $3 million a month in operating expenses. Joe also bought a super large stake in EMI Music. It's a business group slash recording label conglomerate known for acts like Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, and Taylor Swift. And apparently Joe was quite the Swifty because he invested $106 million into EMI. Yeah, dude, pretty steep price, but I have heard it's getting really expensive to see Taylor Swift. It is believed that Lowe specifically bought into EMI just to get close to celebrities. More on that later. Joe Lowe also teamed up with his bestie, Riza Aziz, to start a Hollywood production company called Red Granite Pictures, a company that produced a major motion picture that grossed over $400 million and was nominated for five Academy Awards, including a Best Picture win for Leonardo DiCaprio. And we'll be talking all about Leo and Joe Lowe's other celebrity pals in the next episode. It's basically going to be full-on tabloid celebrity gossip mixed with true crime, and I can't freaking wait. So don't miss part two. In the meantime, I'll be hanging out in my closet. <clears throat> I mean, podcast studio. Reading Rosma Mansour's autobiography, making sure I keep up with appearances for all my dozen admiring fans. Oh, baby, we're going to feast next week and dine out on all that tasty Jolo drama. Ah, I can't wait. Tell me what you think so far. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow true crime feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start the ranking, if you like today's story, you may also enjoy a podcast series from author Tom Wright called Fat Leonard. It's about another Malaysian man from the city of Penang who bribed U.S. Navy officers with cash, prostitutes, and luxury items in return for multi-million dollar contracts. It's a story that's sure to forever change the way you look at the U.S. Navy. I'm already feeling that way just after episode one. I found it really upsetting. Definitely wasn't in the right headspace for it going in. So I'm holding off on the rest for now. I'll try and revisit it when I feel up for it. But if you're ready to go there, check out Fat Leonard from Project Brazen. And also, if you listen to my coverage of the podcast series Twin Flames, there's a three-part docuseries out on Netflix right now with a whole lot of new deets. You get to hear from Keeley's perspective, 
And from the person who was referred to as Katie in the podcast series, but goes by her real name, Elle, in the Netflix series. I was originally a little hard on this person, referring to her as a twin-flamed legend in my episode, but my opinions have definitely shifted after viewing this docuseries. It builds very well off the original Twin Flame podcast as a next chapter to this ongoing saga. And now, without further ado, let's get down to business. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have witnessed season five fade to black. Here's a rundown from the show page. When L.A. screenwriter Gary Devereaux mysteriously disappears in the summer of 1997, Weird coincidences lead family and friends to believe he may have been a victim of foul play, possibly because of his mysterious ties to the CIA. Gary was on the way home from finishing his latest script, which was allegedly going to be based in part on real events that occurred during the American invasion of Panama. And that script vanished along with him and his vehicle. Currently on episode three, we're getting into the U.S. invasion of Panama. Very intriguing, but I gotta admit, some of it went over my head. Side note, anyone else feel like they missed out on a whole chunk of geopolitical history from the 1970s on? Maybe because it wasn't usually a great look for the U.S., especially our not-so-secret meddling in Latin America. Even Danica couldn't put a positive spin on that whole cluster puck. But what isn't a shit show is witnessed fade to black. This podcast is totally schooling me, plus bringing on the thrill chills. At the number two spot, we have The Wedding Scammer. Here's a summary from the show page. Have you ever been scammed? In The Ringer's first true crime podcast, host Justin Sales tracks a mysterious figure who once wronged him. A man with a lot of aliases, a lot of failed businesses, and a trail of victims. Justin follows him through a sham media company, a series of ruined weddings, and beyond, trying to find answers. The police can't offer any help. But maybe he can. I've just finished episode five and I am loving it. So in awe of how this investigation is coming together. With victims of the scammer that are scattered all over the U.S., they're finding each other. Because they use social media as a tool. Instead of being a tool on social media. Ugh, I love it. And I am frothing at the mouth for the upcoming episode where Justin wears a wire. Can't wait for more of The Wedding Scammer. And at the number one spot, we have Ghost Story. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Host Tristan Redman is a seasoned journalist who doesn't believe in ghosts, but weird things happened in the bedroom he lived in as a teenager. When he discovers years later that subsequent occupants of the same house have been visited by the ghost of a faceless woman, he's curious. Because it just so happens that Tristan's childhood home 
is right next door to the house where his wife's great-grandmother, Naomi Dancy, was murdered in 1937, killed by two gunshots to the face. Could there be a connection between the ghost and the murder? Tristan decides to investigate and soon finds himself going where no son-in-law should go, deep into his wife's family history, asking questions no one wants answered. I just finished the final episode and I'm already sad that this one's over. I just adored this show every step of the way. I loved how it was both relaxing and also kept me on the edge of my seat. This show is also super meta, it was funny, and even times downright adorable. But most of all, it was a truly thoughtful investigation that paid homage to Naomi. You gotta listen to this show. And if you want to get super spoilery on the details, we've got a thread going in the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. I would love to hear what you thought about the ending of Ghost Story. Now for my miss of the week. We have the kids of Rutherford County. Here's a synopsis from the show page. From Serial Productions and the New York Times, in partnership with ProPublica and Nashville Public Radio, The Kids of Rutherford County is reported and hosted by Maribah Knight, a Peabody award-winning reporter based in the South. For over a decade, one Tennessee county arrested and illegally jailed hundreds, maybe thousands of children. A four-part narrative series reveals how this came to be the adults responsible for it, and two lawyers, former juvenile delinquents themselves, who try to do something about it. This show has everything going for it. It's currently ranking at the number one spot, and it's been there for a few weeks now. It's from the New York Times and Serial Productions and reeks of prestige. An excellent story that deserves to be highlighted, but a terrible execution. I started The Kids of Rutherford County so many times now and could not follow along. Host Maribah Knight is getting a lot of unfair flack for her vocal fry, which I'm bummed to see. It makes me hesitant to pile on anymore. Her voice is not my issue. It's the entire pacing of the show. I can't keep track of who's who. Storylines are being dropped left and right. It's just frustrating because this show has so much potential. A production team of immense talent and a whole lot of resources behind them compared to most podcasts. It's frankly shocking to me that this was the final cut. I kind of felt the same way when I was watching Avatar, The Shape of Water. Like y'all spent 400 million to make this movie where the dialogue sounded like it was written by a middle school boy. Yo, did Joe Lowe put you guys up to this? Anyway, I'm really bummed about it, but I'm going to have to send the kids of Rutherford County down my podcast queue trap door. Find out next week who will be in the number one spot now that Ghost Story has concluded. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue trap door. I'll meet you back here next week for part two of our coverage of Joe Lowe for your next feeding fix.
that's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding. Thank you.